As you will hear in this production, I got bit in the head by a big old venomous snake one fateful day, which I'll tell you about in a bit. But after that bite, I started going to the doctor, and they revealed that because of the trauma to my head, I might one day get what's called the dementia. So here's what it's like for me. Sometimes I sit there for like 30 minutes up to an hour, just trying to remember what I ate for supper the night before. This is why it's so important for me to stay in routine. Just going to work, going to church, and going home. If I get off this routine, my nerves get shot. When I'm off this routine, I can't always remember things. It's why when people talk to me about important events that occurred within our faith, I always tell them, you better ask Andrew, because Andrew always remembers. I hope I'm able to keep a good mind always, but I do know there's a chance that I may one day lose my memory, thanks to that terrible snake bite. I sometimes forget people's names, even the folks I work alongside and talk to every day at the job. As for the story I'm about to tell you, you should know I have changed all the names in order to protect the privacy of those who have revolved around my life. This is a story about me, my testimony recounting all the good, the bad, and the devastating being a fourth-generation serpent-handling preacher. But yes, I do invite you to take into account my condition. For instance, there was a time I was sitting at work and could see Cassie's face right there in my memory. But I could not even remember her name. I was so scared. I couldn't remember her name, and Cassie was the love of my life. I could see how beautiful she was, but I could not remember for the life of me her name. And we'd already been together for five years by then. Sometimes I can't always remember the kids' names either. I have to sit there and think about what they are. It's why I like to stay in routine, because routine makes it easier for me to remember all the important things. I'm essentially not with it this evening, as I'm speaking to you. I worked 15 and a half hours yesterday. I had a shovel in my hand for 80% of the day. I'm exhausted. When I got home, I could barely hold my head up. In times like this, my memory just seems a little bit worse. So I just felt it important to say, right here at the start, I'm writing this memoir to the best of my memory. I do feel it will give you a perfect idea of what life was like growing up a fourth-generation serpent handler. But also, I think you should know that perhaps not every fact in this book is exactly 100% fact. Because to be honest, it is exactly why I sat down to write the memoir in the first place. I wanted to get this all down on paper before I do, if worse should happen, lose my memory. One day, I know I might have to come back and read it for myself, just to remember who I was, just to figure out who I am. This is Mark for Life, Memoir of a Serpent Handling Preacher by Cody Coots. This right here is one of my favorite scriptures. Psalm 103 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He hath not dealt after us our sins, nor rewarded us according to our inequities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. Hello, Cody Coots here. I'd like to share with you the story of my life. My name is Gregory Dakota Coots, better known as Cody or Little Cody, but you can call me Cody. I was born August 13, 1992 in Pineville, Kentucky. I descended from four generations of serpent handlers, which is the term most people use to describe us. But if you want to be precise, you can call us science-following folks. It's precise because there's more to us than just serpent handling. In the scriptures we cite, the King James Version Bible states that them that believe can do these five things. 1. Cast out devils. 2. Speak in new tongues. 3. Take up serpents. 4. If we drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt us. 5. We lay hands on the sick, and they are healed. It's from Mark 16, chapter 17 through 18. We handle rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouths, you name it. Some of us have even handled cobras before. It's just doing what it says in the Bible to do. We do it to confirm the word. We also drink poisonous substances like strychnine, battery acid, and sometimes even cyanide. My dad was born Gregory James Coots, better known as Jamie. He was one of the most famous serpent handlers who ever lived. When I think of dad, I think of his shiny bald head and also his perfectly trimmed goatee. He had dark skin too. He was always well-dressed. He always looked very good. Dad was soft-spoken with an extremely kind personality. He was unique in the way he dealt with people, not just how he interacted with family or church people, but how he behaved towards everybody he met. Dad was really just a nice person. My mom is Linda Nell Coots of Middlesbrough, Kentucky. When I think of mom, I think of how short and skinny she always was. As far back as I can remember, that was her impression on me. To this day, she has long black hair, although nowadays there's some gray in it. Her skin is much lighter complexion than dad's was. My sister, a year older than me, was named Katrina Nicole, who we called Trina. Trina was short. I think she was probably about four foot nine or thereabouts. She had dad's dark skin. The thing that stuck out most about her was how long her hair was. It was really, really long hair and brown as can be. Trina never cut it from her childhood days. Not even a single inch. She also had sort of odd personality, too. If Trina liked you, you knew it. But if she didn't like you, you really knew it. Finally, I should tell you about my papaw Greg, or Pap as I like to call him. Pap's story has been intertwined with mine since the day I was born. Pap is a fairly typical older guy who has typical gray hair, almost all of it snow white. He always combed it over, too as far back as I can remember. He always wore his watch. Pap is a very well-dressed man, especially when he goes to church. He, like Dad was, is a very kind-spoken person, but not the type to initiate conversation. And he's certainly not one for small talk. My great-papa Tommy was one of the first of us to perform the signs. 
This was back when he built the family church in 1973. Pap Tommy established the church alongside his wife, Lou. They were both exceptional singers and instrumentalists. Pap Tommy was a songwriter who recorded songs with Lou in real recording studios. They performed their songs on old-timey radio shows and revivals across the Kentucky countryside. Nowadays, since the records are hard to find, they're valuable, especially to vinyl collectors. Believe it or not, I've never heard anybody in the church talk about Papa Tommy's accomplishments very much. Even when he died, the only person I remember getting a guitar was his son, Pap. None of the brothers seemed to want any of his guitars. Papa Tommy's songbook wasn't something that the church people seemed to desire either. Nobody fussed too much over his records. Maybe they just didn't consider it art. Or maybe it was because everybody in the church had sung his songs a thousand times over by the time he had died. Like the song, Jesus Made the World, which is still one of the most widely sung songs in our faith. To those in the faith, I guess it was just another number. Who knows if they truly appreciated the value of how good Papa Tommy's stuff really was. If you think about it, there aren't many songwriters from the signs-following churches. In fact, there aren't too many songwriters in a lot of churches nowadays, not those who can truly write songs of power. You just don't hear a lot of that anymore. Oh, Jesus made the world, and the world knew him not. He was in this world. It was Papa Tommy who taught Dad to perform the signs, and eventually, Dad passed it on down to me. I guess I came to doing it because I was told about it my whole entire life. I saw the signs performed at church three times a week for years and years, especially after Dad became pastor. He was the one who raised and cared for the snakes who took them to the church every time we went. My sister and I would run around the sanctuary playing with toy snakes when we were kids, just trying to mimic what we saw in church. If we didn't have toy snakes, we'd use a pair of belts for a substitute. I was different to most everybody, it seemed like. I don't remember much about my childhood. I've tried to block most of it out because something bad happened to me when I was young, which changed my life forever. Back in those days, everything revolved around going to church as much as we could. You never miss a chance to learn about God or to get saved or to hear about what God can do for you. But in all that, I don't guess anybody ever stressed to me how much evil occurs in the world. I just thought that people were good. All people. Back in those days. I perceived no evil in this world. Only later did I discover that just as God is good and God is real, There's truly a devil in this world who possesses evil beyond imagining. Now, Dad, Mom, my sister, and I all lived in an apartment complex called Bella Gardens in the town of Middlesbrough, Kentucky. It was right near the projects, which were just beyond the house. If you wandered off too far from the yard, let's just say you'd need your wits about you. I didn't play sports back then. I mainly rode my huffy trick bike that my grandma Linda Coots bought me. An extremely nice bike. I would navigate the woods and creeks on our side of the projects, just trying to be a regular kid 
out trying to have some fun. Aside from that, the people of the church didn't seem to want kids exploring too far outside the safety of the church ways, if that makes sense. So I didn't have too many friends back then. It made me feel socially awkward. But I did excel at something. I was a born drummer. I've been told I started playing drums back when I was six or seven years old. I'd gather up pots and pans in the kitchen and line them out on the floor, making myself a big old drum set. I'd sit behind them and go to town. Dad was a great musician himself, a guitarist who'd written a couple of songs. One day he happened to notice I kept a pretty good beat playing on those pots and pans. He went right out and bought me a beginner drum set, a tiny little baby drum set. Regardless, they were drums. I got a few beats and drum fills together. Dad took me down to the church, setting that tiny drum set up alongside the band. I was right near the Bible stand. I remember waiting breathlessly as the band started up. I counted myself in. One, two, three, four. I tore into those drums. I pounded the head and tiny cymbals with everything I had in me. I tried my best to be as loud as the crescendo of the band and all the incredible singing, but Dad realized I couldn't be heard over the sound. So he went out and got me a real drum set, the Pearl Export Series, a red drum set, fire engine red. Because we were poor, it was just a shell pack of drums, which means they came without cymbals. The day I went back to church, Miss Crawford sang lead. She was a wonderful singer. As much passion as she could put into the song, I'd put into my new drums, as hard as I could. From that day on, cymbals or not, I became the church drummer, especially when it came to the fast songs. I was always very good at those. One day we were forced to move from Bella Gardens. I remember a woman had been bitten by a rattlesnake. It was Melinda Brown, Punkin Brown's wife. Punkin was the most famous serpent handler of all time, and he and Dad were best friends. They took her to our apartment and prayed and prayed for her. Despite the prayer, Melinda died pretty soon after, because she had died from a snake bite from which nobody had called an ambulance. The law came to us. They told Daddy couldn't bring any more snake-bitten people to the apartment anymore, under any circumstances. Dad couldn't live with that, so he found us a really good deal on a house over on South 45th Street. This was the place my life would be forever changed, and not for the better. In this account, we will call this house the House of Horror. Chapter 2 I think this is a downright appropriate verse to read for this next chapter. Psalm 23, verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. To tell you the story of the house of horror, I should probably start at the end. One day, long after we had been living there, Dad invited a man to come over. I hated this man's guts. I'll tell you why in a minute. He once lived with us in the house of horror, 
back when he was a bachelor, before he met his wife. Dad had offered him a room just to help out. This man was rising in the church. He was a fine singer, a charismatic preacher, considered to be an upstanding member of the faith, not just in Middlesboro, but in churches across Tennessee and Alabama. We were happy to have him. Years later, back for a visit with his new wife, he stood there chatting with mom and dad in the living room after service. I walked in and saw him and reflexively called the man by the name of a known child molester. You see, there was once a person who had been famously banned from the science faith. The name I called this man, everybody in our church knew well. As soon as I called him that, my goodness, everyone freaked out. My parents instantly apologized to the man and then jerked me and Trina back into their bedroom so I could get a scolding. Like I mentioned, I hated this man's guts. It was a hate so strong. It had been growing for so long that finally, the moment I saw him again, all these horrid memories of him returned, and my rage just erupted. Why did you call him by that name, Dad said. He was mad. I could tell he was disappointed in me. I just stared at the floor. Trina did, too. Cody, he said, tell me why you called the man by the name of a child molester. What did he ever do to you? When he said that, everything just went dark. Something snapped in me. It was a volcanic rage straight from my heart to my mouth. Before I knew it, I was spilling everything he had done to me, to my mom and dad. What did he do to me, I said? Let me tell you. You have no idea all the horrible things he has done to me. My rage deepened with every word. They were silent sitting frozen in wide-eyed horror as I told them everything he did to me. I told them about the years of demented, horrific abuse this man had inflicted on me on so many dark nights when I'd watched him from the corner of my eye as he entered my bedroom and closed the door behind him. When I finished telling them everything, I stood there wondering what would happen next. I looked over at Trina. I was horrified about what all she might think of me. He did the same things to me too, she said, staring at the floor with a voice hoarse with shame. It shocked me. I couldn't believe it. I had no idea this monster had hurt my sister too. I could tell by the devastated looks on their faces that my parents were blindsided. It absolutely devastated them. We told them it happened for years. The following is a message from the editors which intends to validate and bring context to the abuse described by Cody Coots. The following is a scene from Heaven Come Down, Snake Handlers, Sinners, and The Electrifying Spirit, a TV movie released in 2006. The documentary is a depiction of, quote, unusual worship practices of some Pentecostal Christians in Appalachia. While in production, it came to the attention of the two independent filmmakers that a principal interviewee, a sweet-singing, serpent-handling congregant appearing frequently in their footage, had been accused of child sexual abuse. The two filmmakers decided to incorporate the incident into their movie. One sequence shows the accused traveling back and forth to court 
the grave concern darkening the man's face is unmistakable. The state don't want to put the two children on the witness stand. How old do you think Trina is? Twelve. About a... 10 or 11 years old, the boys around nine. Ultimately, a court in Pineville, Kentucky, allowed the filmmakers access, who professionally filmed the man's sentencing day. This was in November of 2002. With his wife and family sitting beside him, the defendant rises as he is asked to approach the bench. Presiding that day was Judge James L. Bowling. In the following segment, you will hear mentions of the man Cody has named as his abuser. We will censor the man's name with a beep sound in this reading. We are doing this because, frankly, in his manuscript, Cody Coots never once mentioned the man by name, so the editors do not want to force him to hear it again in this retelling. For those compelled to know more about the abuser, the 2006 documentary, Heaven Come Down, certainly features him. Also, at the time of this recording, there is one newspaper article discoverable online. You understand that two counts of sodomy carry 10 to 20 year sentences. You understand that the court, after this plea of guilty, the court can sentence you within that range. Yes, sir. Okay. What is the Commonwealth's recommendation in this matter? The Commonwealth recommends 10 years in the penitentiary. After the trial scene, Heaven Come Down transitions to prisoner who speaks to film producers Michael Meese and Gabriel Rye. The prisoner sits in a cell dressed in striped standard issue prisoner attire. As the camera rolls, delivers the following monologue to the film directors. The first time anything ever happened, which was just a kiss, I knew right then that that wasn't the right thing to do. I don't know why I did it exactly. It just started as something little at home, as far as the sexual impurities and stuff. You engaged in deviant sexual intercourse with a person under 12 years of age? Yes, sir. I was in the woods serpent hunting with coots, and I was up on the top of this bank, and there was a board down there. That's where we caught a lot of snakes there all the time, and he flipped that board over, and there was a rattlesnake. So I had a tongue, and he had a tongue. I said, here, he fell of it. I said, here, give it to me. And I'd been praying real good. You know, I hadn't been being sexually impure, you know, trying to do good, trying to pray. I mean, I've been, I was praying good that morning before we went. So he passed the rattlesnake up on the hook and I picked it up like this. And when I did, for a split second, I seen a vision of, of uh, I seen the coach girl sitting in a chair being blunt herself. I mean, that's what the vision was. As soon as I seen that in a vision, that rattlesnake tied me right there on the arm. It didn't go in, it didn't hurt me, but it hit me. And I didn't realize really why it happened. And I never could really understand what that meant, except, you know, basically, if you look at it naturally, you're playing with fire and you can get burnt. Like God warned me not to do that. The Commonwealth of Kentucky's offer on a plea of guilty. 
Between 1999 and 2001, in Bell County, Kentucky, the defendant engaged in deviant sexual intercourse with K period, C period. A person under 12 years old also engaged in deviant sexual intercourse with D period, C period. A person less than 12 years old. Recommendations on a plea of guilty are as follows. 10 years in the penitentiary under counts one and two. Five years in the penitentiary under counts three and four. Such sentences to run concurrently with each other. This is the end of the editor's note. So, Trina and I spilled the beans. My parents sat there horrified. This really shell-shocked them. When they finally stood up and opened the bedroom door to walk out and confront the man, the couple was gone. A whirlwind followed. I can't even remember what all happened that day. But let me tell you what. It was bad. Really bad. I do remember that nobody really wanted to get the cops involved. I also remember, as the church became more involved in the incident, somebody got in touch with the molester and told him that he could fast for seven days. They said that if he did this, he'd be delivered from the evil spirit of pedophilia. I guess the guy must not have done it, because not long after that, the entire faith heard about what he did and banished him forever. I also remember a group who came down from an affiliate church in Morristown. They came in droves. They were church members, and they were very upset about what had happened to me and Trina. They demanded a meeting with Dad, to which Dad agreed. On the day of the meeting, Dad approached our Uncle Jimmy. Walk Trina and Cody up the road a piece, will you? He said. I don't want them hearing anything these people have to say. But you know how kids are. Trina and I found out all about it anyway. In the meeting, they told Dad he should step down as pastor. Somebody else stood up and said, Cody and Trina are going to be marked for life. Whatever that meant, I just knew it was bad. Nobody ever explained what marked for life meant, but sometimes you can tell that something is bad as soon as you hear it. I chewed on that for days and days. With everything that had happened to me, and none of it in my control, I began to grow very angry. I began to hate everyone. I began to hate everything. There was an anger stern inside of me that would eventually become an absolute rage. It would last for years. My family, my friends, my church, and even my God would all become targets of my wrath. As time went on, they sent me to a psychiatrist. The doctor was a very nice man, I suppose. But I do remember him saying that most kids who are molested end up becoming sexually deviant. I didn't know what that meant at the time. Around my circles, I remember hearing these sorts of things said. That because I had suffered what I had, I was doomed to become a homosexual or even a male prostitute. I went to see the psychiatrist a few times a week. Soon enough, though, I began to feel inside just what the church members had said I would. Marked for life. I began to believe this. I really did. I began to believe that I might turn out to be gay or even become a male prostitute. I felt like their predictions were coming true. 
Even with all the therapy, I continued to grow in my rage. In church, they'd say, Cody, all things happen for a reason. They tried to look at the bright side of things. This is something that happened to you so that one day you can help someone who suffered a similar evil, Cody. But that didn't make it okay. I couldn't understand why I had been chosen to carry such a burden. It was too much for a 12-year-old boy to suffer. They told me it was God's will. But God's will was just too cruel for me to handle. Next week, Chapter 3, Cody begins to downspiral. A big thank you to Heaven Come Down creator, director Michael Mees, whose partner, Gabriel Rye, recently passed away. Michael was incredibly helpful, allowing us to use the trial scene footage, which actually cannot be found anywhere. After we spoke with Mr. Mees at the completion of this episode, we discovered that this movie, besides a few clips here and there on YouTube and other sites, is no longer available in full to the public. We will keep you updated if any of that should ever change. 